lovely song. She sang it especially for me. He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. That's a great message. For those of you who just arrived on the grounds and we've been watching folks come in, no doubt from the area here, we're so glad you're here. We hope you'll feel free to come back again. Tonight, following our afternoon service at 3 with uh, our brother Richard Jordan, Pastor Stan will be speaking tonight, as you already heard, and we ought to fill the auditorium. Our theme for the conference, as the banner says, is light affliction, great glory, and comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's turn there, please, for our scripture reading this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to begin with verse 7. But we have this treasure, and uh, if you want to know what the treasure is, you need to read just a little ahead of that. And you find that the treasure is the gospel of grace, which the Apostle Paul is talking about. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency, or as the Revised says, the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might or may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of the faith, definite article there. And I point out to our people in Denver that uh, whenever the definite article appears before a word, it's uh, specific. It's either talking about the principle of faith or else a body of truth or doctrine. I think he's talking about the principle of faith in this instance. We having the same spirit of the faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by or through Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. And this is the imperative as I understand it, and it's absolutely not. We absolutely do not faint, is what he's saying. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, and here's our verse, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit may seal the truth of thy word to our hearts at this time. And we ask that every one of us who name the name of Christ and who call ourselves God's children Help us, Lord, to appropriate the truth here, which is addressed especially to us. And we pray for anyone who may be outside of Christ here, those who've never known the joy of sins forgiven. May they see 
that they are the sinner for whom Christ died. And may they too experience the joy of spiritual victory in these difficult days. We commit the hour to thee and thank thee in Christ's name. Amen. Since most of our brethren who will be speaking the balance of the week will be speaking on topical messages, we thought it appropriate that we look at a little of the background here to perhaps acquaint us with the life of the Apostle Paul and what made it possible for a man who was the Lord's greatest enemy to be able to say, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Second Corinthians was written to the church of God. We learned that in chapter 1. The church of God, which is at Corinth. And it evidently was written some months after the first epistle to the Corinthians, which most expositors agree was written between 57 and 59 A.D. It was written from Macedonia, as far as we can tell, right after the apostle had traveled there from the city of Ephesus, where he had undergone some of the most terrible persecution and suffering for the gospel's sake. The first half of the letter of 2 Corinthians deals with the minister and his ministry. And lest anyone get the idea that a minister is simply the man who stands behind the pulpit and preaches, let's make clear that we are all ministers if we are children of God. We believe there are lady ministers. Now, I'm not talking about lady pastors. That I do not agree with. And I don't think the Word of God does either, which is most important. But there are many countless numbers of lady ministers. And thank the Lord for the lady ministers. I remind our people that I'm not a woman hater. But at the same time, I'm not at all in favor of the so-called ERA. Nor am I in favor of women taking men's places. And I don't think the Word of God is. But lady ministers, thank the Lord for them. What would us men do without the lady ministers in our churches? The pastors in this room will agree with that, I'm sure. We're all ministers, and we ought to find out what our ministry is. I've had people say to me, well, I just can't find out what I'm supposed to do. One thing is certain. If the Lord wants you to preach, he'll give you the ability to preach. He wants you to sing like Anne did today. You'll be able to sing. He'll give you a voice to sing. Some people want to sing and they can't carry a note in a basket. Sure, if the Lord wants us to preach, he wants us to sing, he wants us to witness, he wants us to pray, he wants us to give, he wants us to uh, pass out tracts, he'll give us the ability to do that. And you know, there are few of us who can't find a ministry about which to be busy in these days. I say again, Let's find out what our ministry is and get busy. 
See, the Lord doesn't send angels down to do the job we're supposed to do. In this section of the first part of 2 Corinthians, he speaks specifically of the ministry of the gospel of grace. And in these chapters also, he details some of the trials and some of the testings which he himself experienced. But not only did he detail the testings, but he detailed the victory over them. And that's the wonderful part. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now he's talking, of course, here about a physical deliverance. But there's a spiritual application, isn't there? In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us, or the margin, you notice, says, leadeth us in triumph, causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Thanks be unto God for the victory. The Apostle Paul could say it. Now in chapter 4, where our theme verse is found, he speaks of the minister's heart attitude in the ministry. Some years ago, my friend Pastor Shriver sent me a little tract. you remember that, Harlan? By J.B. Toes. And it's entitled, The Key to Fruitful Christian Service. Many years ago, so long ago you forgot it. But you know that, I treasure that little booklet. An excellent exposition of 2 Corinthians 4. And I, I just copied the five main points that he gives in chapter 4 just to give you a little something to think about and to digest. He says in verse 1, the minister, and that means all of us who are saved, ought to have a constant awareness of being an object of God's mercy. In verse 2, we should have a consuming desire to have a conscience void of offense before God and men. In verses 3 to 5, we ought to have a clear realization of the true issues in the ministry. What's it all about? What are we trying to do? In verse 7, a humble acknowledgment of the true source of power in the ministry. We have this glorious message in earthen vessels, so we can't take any credit ourselves. We are apt to want to say, I did this or I did that, as our brother Don Weffel mentioned this morning. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And you know, an earthen vessel is very breakable. And I think there's this thought in, the, in that verse that we need to be broken so the light can shine out, like Gideon, you remember? And in verses 8 to 18, and that's where our text is, a willingness to suffer in the ministry. You know, as I was studying this portion and trying to prepare this message, I thought, I really can't get up there and talk about suffering because I don't know anything about it. I don't think that any of us here who have come to know Christ as our Savior can actually say that we've done any suffering for Christ's sake. I read about men of God in the past who have. I read about those even in the so-called grace movement who have suffered for the stand they've taken for the Pauline message. But I can't really say that I've suffered. And I feel very inadequate standing here trying to talk to you about this. 
because I really haven't experienced it. None of us have really suffered for the gospel of grace, have we? The Apostle Paul did. But when I read about the Apostle's suffering, I'm ashamed that I've not entered into that suffering that he underwent. It's in this last section, verses 8 to 18, that we read this morning, where we have our text, is what I said. First of all, let's define our term. What do we mean by affliction? The lexicon defines affliction as suffering. As we said, And there seems to be a principle in the Word of God which says that fruitfulness in the ministry is conditioned upon suffering to a point. Christ referred to it in John 12, 24. Let's turn there. You remember... He was talking about his death. And in chapter 12, verse 24, he said, Except, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And the apostle Paul referred to this principle in 1 Corinthians 15, the great Resurrection chapter, in verses 36 and 37. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou knowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain, it may chance of wheat, or of some other grain. And Paul here says that before there can be resurrection, there must be death. This is true physically, and may we add it's true spiritually. Now in our text here in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul in verses 8 to 12 speaks about the suffering that he underwent. But all the time, not boasting about his own suffering, but showing how the Lord gave him victory through it. You remember that when Saul of Tarsus was stopped on the Damascus Road, the Lord had told him, He is a chosen vessel unto me. I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. In writing to Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 2.9, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even under bonds. And this was his last days in that dungeon in Rome. And here in his earlier ministry, he contrasts his trials with his triumphs, his bodily weakness with his spiritual strength. Verse 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Now, it seems that this is talking about mental Soul suffering, mental anguish. I think it's possible for your mental condition to affect you physically, of course. Many people are troubled in their mind and their body gets sick. That happens often. 
And the Apostle Paul evidently was troubled on every side. The word trouble there is pressed. And uh, it's a word we're told by the lexicons that was used regarding a wrestling match. When one wrestler pinned the other one to the mat, he was pressing him downward. And I was interested to note that in the Companion Bible, Dr. Bullinger says that uh, it means to be suffocated. And I imagine a big heavy wrestler getting another man down would just about suffocate him. Paul says, I am pressed or almost suffocated on every side. And perplexed also. But he adds, not despairing. Perplexed. That suggests that there are times not only in the apostles' life, but times in our lives when we don't know which way to turn. We've all been there, haven't we, at one time or other? Maybe our young people haven't experienced much of this. But if the Lord permits you to live, I promise you that there will come times when you will be perplexed and not know which way to turn. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Remember the apostle said in Romans 8.26, We know not what we should pray for as we ought. Many times, and I see a lot of senior citizens in the audience, many times some of us have been unable to pray. We haven't known how to pray. We haven't known what to pray for. We haven't known which way to turn. I think this is a little of what Paul had in mind here. And in verse 9, he speaks about outward suffering. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Persecuted. The word persecuted here is also translated pursued. Like a person being pursued. I've never had that happen to me, actually, physically. But I can tell you that I have dreamt sometime. Did you ever dream that somebody was after you? I have to admit that there have been times when I have been running away from something. I don't know what it was. And I just, they were gaining on me. What an awful feeling. Paul says persecuted or pursued but not forsaken. Cast down. The word cast is translated struck down in the revised. Struck down. And maybe he's referring to the time at Lystra when they threw stones at him. And then dragged him out by his heels to the outskirts of the city, leaving him for dead. He says, but not destroyed. And in verses 10 to 12, he sums up his suffering by saying, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Death and life contrasted in verses 11 and 12. He says, I'm always in danger of death. You remembered he wrote earlier to the Corinthians, I die daily. Now that verse has been spiritualized by some as though it was necessary for believers to die daily in a spiritual sense. I think that 
if we died with Christ, we died with him once. A once-for-all transaction. Not only did we die with him, but we were buried with him and we arose with him. He's talking here, of course, when he says, I die daily, of the fact that he was in constant danger of physical death. He said in Romans 8, 36, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. Now, he wasn't actually slain physically, but he was in danger of being killed every day. There can be no resurrection until first there is death. And verses 11 and 12 point this out. He says, death worketh in us, verse 12, but life in you. And Paul, you remember, prayed for the believers at Ephesus and other places as well that they might make progress spiritually and that they might know the resurrection power of Christ in their daily lives. In verses 13 and 14, Paul's hope for the ministry. We having the same spirit of the faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. And you see that's, an, that's a quotation from the 116th Psalm. The same spirit of faith as the psalmist had, Paul says, we have. And because we have faith, faith creates testimony. We believe, therefore we speak. Faith makes it possible for us to speak with confidence, doesn't it? How do you get faith? I say this so often. And I would say this to anyone who is unsaved here this morning. And you just there just might be someone here who hasn't trusted Christ. You can't work faith up. You can't say, well, I'm determined to have faith. You don't pray faith down. I've had people say to me through the years, well, you know, I got on my knees and I prayed and prayed and prayed for faith. You don't get faith by praying. You can pray from now till your dying day and still not have faith. One of our young men who was here with us this week from Denver, I spoke with his mother. And she said to me, I need faith. I just have to have more faith. And I told her this. I said, faith is the gift of God. You can't work it up and you can't pray it down. I said, faith cometh by hearing the word of God. And I want to say that to anyone who's unsaved here. If you've never come to know real assurance that you are a child of God and you want to know, faith cometh by hearing the word of God. It's that simple. But you know, we make it so complicated that many people's think that it's all the result of self-effort. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. Isn't that simple? It's so simple we stumble all over it. Paul says, we believe, therefore we speak. In verse 14, he talks about the hope of resurrection. Resurrection at Christ's coming. You remember he wrote to the Colossians, When Christ who is our life shall appear, 
then shall we also appear with him in glory. And in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we look for the Lord Jesus. Paul's hope was in the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection. And one of these days when the Lord comes, we're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It could be this morning. We believe that the rapture could take place at any moment. I sometimes remind our folks at home that most of us are really not looking for the Lord. We're making long-range plans to be here. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should neglect your family and forget about uh, providing for the future. Paul says, if you don't provide for those of your own, you're worse than an infidel, remember? But at the same time, all of us need to remember that the rapture could take place at any moment. What are we saving our material gain for? For a rainy day? Why, the rapture may come and we'll be changed. And like the two men were saying who were discussing the death of a very wealthy man who had passed away before, one of them said, how much did he leave? And the other said, everything. And that's right. Everything. The Apostle Paul was looking for the Lord to come. The resurrection and his coming. Some of us may be taken before then. And they may put these old bodies down in the grave. We don't know. But our hope is the rapture, isn't it? And it could take place, as I said, right today. Right today. I say to our people at home, I wish it would happen when I was standing right in, behind the pulpit. Oh, I'd love to go right up through there. Wouldn't that be great? You wouldn't have to go out the door. We'd go right up. Wouldn't even make a hole in the ceiling. In verse 15, Paul again speaks about his suffering and he says, or gives, I should say, the reason for his suffering. In chapter 1, 3 to 6, and here's a passage I read all the time for people in the hospital. I think here's the most comforting passage of Scripture to read when you go to the hospital, fellow pastors. Verse 3, First or Second Corinthians 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, or our comfort, or our encouragement, also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your comfort, or consolation, or encouragement and salvation. 
Why did Paul suffer? Why do we suffer? Here's the answer. One of the answers. Paul gives two reasons for his sufferings here. Number one, to comfort others. That's mentioned right in the verses we just read. Why am I called upon to suffer so that I in turn can comfort someone else who's going through the same experience? How else could I enter into someone's comfort or someone's tribulation or someone's sorrow if I'd never experienced it myself? It's been my joy through the years to be able to sit down with someone who's lost a loved one and be able to enter into their sorrow because I know about it firsthand. And so Paul says the reason that he suffered, and I may add the reason that we suffer as God's people now, is that we might comfort others who are in the same sorrow or have the same tribulation or trial. From his prison in Rome, the apostle said in Colossians 1.24 that he was filling up the sufferings of Christ. You see, if the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth today, they would nail him to the cross again. He would go through the same sufferings that he underwent when he was here the first time. If he was on earth again, I say again, they would still try to kill him and he would no doubt be nailed to a cross again. In Colossians 1.24 it says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind or which is lacking, the Revised says, of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake which is the church. I was looking through some material that I had in my file and I ran across this thought. One of our grace pastors wrote an article once and he titled it Three Sufferers for Our Sake. The Lord Jesus Christ the Apostle Paul and the nation Israel. I thought that was real good. The second reason that Paul suffered, back to our text, was for the glory of God. Verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. I always say that the believer's first responsibility is to glorify God. When I was in Bible school, I had drilled into me that my first responsibility as a believer was to win souls. I heard that continually and constantly. And each week we gave reports of our practical work and I had to list how many people were saved each week. I look back at that now and I certainly wouldn't have filled out a report like that now. I heard that it was our number one responsibility to win souls. But that isn't it. Because many think that all kinds of carnal and fleshly methods are used to try to win souls. 
How I thank the Lord for at least a measure of understanding in seeing that number one is to glorify God. And if I glorify God in my life and He gets the glory in the ministry, you know what will happen? Souls will be saved. I believe that with all my heart. And I'm so glad that I got cleared up on that important truth. Or else I'd be using all kinds of carnal methods myself trying to win souls. Paul says, for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore we eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's one of our memory verses at home. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And then he adds, because there is a purpose or purposes in suffering, therefore, Verse 16, we faint not. We faint not. Now the word faint means to lose courage. It's used in verse 1 in chapter 4 also. You see the same word or the same phrase. We faint not. We don't become discouraged. And I want to tell you, we don't have any great outward demonstrations in our church services. In fact, I hardly ever give a so-called popular invitation. Oh, I urge people to trust Christ. Yes, I do. But I don't give the invitation that's usually given in most services. And yet it's been our joy to see people saved simply by the preaching of the word, that's all. I don't become discouraged because I don't see great outward results. I was talking to Pastor Thurman before the meeting and I asked him how things were in Afton, and he said, well, we're not setting the world on fire. Nothing great's happening. But listen, what the Lord wants us to do is to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful to the truth and preach it come what may. And I can tell you as a personal testimony that... Standing for the truth by the grace of God without compromise is what God blesses. Sometimes preachers are tempted to water down the truth or the message and not soft pedal this and don't say that so that you'll keep people happy. Oh no, we don't do that. And I admit we've had people kind of angry at us but that's between them and the Lord. If I've been faithful to the truth and preached the word, the Lord will honor that. So I don't become discouraged. I don't become discouraged because there are purposes in affliction, suffering, trials, testings, and we don't become discouraged. We faint not. And then he contrasts his comfort with three figures. He says the outward man and the inward man. The outward man certainly must be this person, this body. 
He says the outward man is perishing. The revised says it's decaying. Not very pleasant thought, is it? I remember a doctor saying in Chicago many years ago when I used to live here that the moment a baby is born, the processes of death begin. And you start to die the moment you're born. We're a dying race, are we not? All of us. The Lord has allowed some of us to stay here a little longer. But we're dying, are we not? The outward man is perishing. But he said the inward man is renewed. Now the inward man is the real I, the real person. I used to explain to the children when I was teaching in children's meetings that the heart is the inside person. When I look at you, I see your outward man, your outward person. I don't really see you. And you don't really see me. But you know, though the outward man may be perishing, the inward man will live on. And while we're in this body, the inward man will be renewed, he says. That is the inward man of the believer. And he acquires new strength. Moment by moment, day by day. Some of us have experienced that renewed strength when we have been about ready to drop sometimes. I'm sure some of the pastors here will enter into this many times when we are exhausted physically. Our inward man has been renewed and we've been strengthened when we needed it the most. He compares affliction with glory. Light affliction, he says, in other words, not heavy. And he calls the trials that he underwent light affliction. We haven't time to read this. I imagine I've gone over time already. But in chapter 11, you can take down the verses. Some of you are writing them down. Verse 24 to 28, he enumerates some of his afflictions. And I read that list, and I'll tell you, I know nothing about the things the Apostle Paul underwent. I've never experienced those. But he says in Romans 8:18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in or to us. Light affliction, great glory. Our other brethren on the program this week will elaborate on all of these truths. But let me just say a word about verse 18. There he contrasts temporal things with eternal things. He says, while we look, not at the things which are seen, those are temporal, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What are we looking at? I have a brother and a sister both of them younger than I am. And they both had to have cataract operations. And I said to my brother recently, I talked to him on the phone, and I said, I wonder why it is that I'm the oldest in the family, but I haven't had to have any cataract operation. 
And he said, you're looking at the right thing. Now, I don't guarantee because we're looking at the right thing that we won't get cataracts, of course. But it is important to keep our eyes looking at the right thing, isn't it? The apostle said in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. And in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope. That'll keep your eyesight in focus. Looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, those of you who re have read on here, in chapter 5, he talks about that blessed hope. Looking for the Lord to come. And he says, we're confident rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Light affliction, great glory. We're going to hear much about the theme the rest of the week from our other brethren. And I trust what we've given you this morning is helpful in giving you a little background of the text. I want to say that should there be someone here this morning who is outside of Christ, you've never come to know that you are the sinner for whom Christ died. You haven't seen that yet. Wouldn't this be a wonderful place to make that heart decision? Right here at the 12th annual BBF Bible Conference. How happy we'd be to have you come this way instead of going out the door. Some of us will remain up here for a few minutes and we'll be so happy to talk to you and show you from the Word of God how you can know that you're saved. Shall we stand as we close?